is if more people had got to the end of the circle and realised the safe haven than having folks who are sort of walking away from the secure base but not knowing that there's a safe haven to get back to. And maybe there's a balance there between judgment and grace, that actually the older brother was expecting judgment rather than safety. And uh, whereas the younger brother, the prodigal, was actually expecting a level of grace. So it's an interesting one. But there's two circles of security, and I'm sure the older brother and the younger brother, in a sense, there was a new circle we could draw about their relationship, but there's not enough information in the story for me to elaborate on that one. Rob, something from you. I, I thought that was an elaboration. <laughs> he was teasing me earlier about going on and on. I'm going to do a very quick one here. Okay, when working with a young person whose parent has an addiction but the parent is refusing to recognize their addiction. What can we as youth workers do? Are there any resources that you can recommend? So I think that is, this is a huge issue about, you know, when do you sort of get people to sort of see the need? And I think sometimes we're very keen to sort of jump in with the answers, particularly when we can see the answers. And I think, you know, when you are working with all kinds of things, be it with, with self-harm, with addiction, et cetera, et cetera, it, you almost need to be sort of working at the sort of awareness-raising kind of level. Um, and likewise, you know, um, Rachel was saying earlier around self-harm, you know, it's not about sort of asking the question that sort of puts the person on the spot because if, if you're not careful, you end up winning the battle but losing the war. So, you know, you may or may not impact the frequency of the behavior um, for a short period of time, but ultimately in the end it comes back and actually the relationship has been broken or damaged. So I'd, I'd say probably two or three things. I think the first thing is you can sort of, don't speak as someone who's been to this conference and therefore has a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, etc. What you should do is you should speak as a friend or, you know, maybe sort of just say, I'm concerned about this. And you, you can say, you know, I, I, I heard this and this and this. I'm concerned. And I'm, I'm just saying that as a human. I'm not saying that because I've got any particular agenda. I'm just concerned about this and just see what kind of answer they come back with. It, it is very difficult to get people to go to therapy and sometimes you work with people who perhaps you've had five six seven conversations about it and there is no progress being made and I think at that point you just have to sort of say we're banging our head against the brick wall at this point and we've done what we can do we have to trust that either the scales will fall from this person's eyes or that um you know they will they will change and see the need or that 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 god is sovereign and will help them recognize that there's a whole bunch of different things but i think probably stopping the one exception to that of course is that if the child is significantly at risk because of this parent's drinking behavior and in that situation that is a child protection situation and you should be raising that with the child protection coordinator in your church Okay, do you want to do one? Um, well, I might just add just a little bit to that, if that's allowed. Um, just no, to say that's that not allowed. No, no heckling from you. Um, Why am I down here and not at you all up there? Because I need to feel tall, because it's the only chance I ever get, so I'm going to stand on the high thing. Just that, um, in any, I've got one here about how, hang on, about um, a teenager in my youth group is having sex with their girlfriend, how can I get them to stop? which I'm not going to answer specifically, but in a way, they're asking a similar question, but on a totally different topic to the one that, you've just, that Rob's just covered, because they're saying basically how somebody's doing something, and to me, it's really obvious that this is a bad idea. So how do we... Thank you. It wasn't me. Did you turn me off? Was it that bad? No, he's shaking his head. Good, then I'll carry on. And one of what, what we, the mistake that we often make is that what we should do is tell them more often and louder why it's obvious to us that they are doing something that is a bad idea. 
Now, if, I, if you think about it, if someone does that to you, let's, let's say that you, that you want me to stop um, my car being such a mess. I'm not going to tell you which one my car is outside, but it is a mess. That is annoying to many people. Never ask for a lift off me. You will sit on a chocolate. <laughs> so if you want me to change that, the obvious approach is just to nag me, to have a go at me, to push me, to tell me that you sat on a chocolate and, ha- and to make me pay your dry cleaning. It's not going to work. I'm just going to get fed up with you moaning, to be honest. Because I don't think there's a problem. I don't mind. I don't care. What you've got to do, first of all, is help me to see that I want to change. So thinking about some of these behaviors, as a psychologist, what we would do is get people to think about what impact, what are the pros and cons of that behavior now? Why are people doing it? It must have a positive impact for them. But what are the cons? And they probably don't see many right now. But then we would get them to do the same exercise thinking, you know, what will the pros and cons be if you're still doing it in five years' time, ten years' time? And sometimes you'll see more breakthrough with people on that. So the first thing is help them to see that there's a problem. So I've answered one and added a bit to you. Can we just, we'll do one more question, but then we want to take one or two from the floor because obviously not everyone's had a chance to put stuff in the bucket. So um, there are some roving mics. Can you wave a roving mic at the back? If you are desperate, toilet-needing desperate to ask a question please put your hand up and a mic will get to you just a word about questions from the floor please first of all keep it short and secondly no personal information please we're not going to give personal advice and we would encourage you not to disclose personal information so short questions from the floor we'll take one after our next one i've got uh, what do you consider is the connection between mental disorder and demon possession uh, as the vicar i should probably I have, have a go at this one, one. Too, yeah. lots we, we, and lots and lots we might be some time uh, no we're not going to be some time, because firstly, I just want to say that the Bible makes explicitly clear there's no such thing as demon possession, and often people make this mistake uh, when we talk about possession, uh, they think in the sense that the demonic is, 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 has ownership over a person. Actually, the scripture says very clearly that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, nothing belongs to Satan. <laughs> Uh, everything belongs to the Lord. And therefore, the idea of possession in itself uh, is a mistaken phenomenon. Generally, it's a Hollywood uh, sort of phenomenon. It's created uh, by Hollywood, and it's uh, there to frighten people. And it's very clear that possession in itself, even Legion, uh, had within him many demons. Seven demons lived in Legion. But actually, Legion didn't belong to the demons. Legion belonged to Christ, uh, as he submitted to Christ. Even in his broken state, Legion was still a man who was created by God and known by God and loved by God. What needed to happen to Legion was he needed to be released from uh, the inhabiting demons. And I I think that's a really, really important point to make with regard uh, to our whole theology of of demonic issue. We talk about demons being involved in this. Remember, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers that we are fighting a battle. Now, it's very, very important that we do not make um, kind of simplistic uh, conclusions when it comes to mental health and demonic influence, as I like to call it. Many people have made a mistake of viewing people with serious and enduring mental health issues like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder as being um, opportune to sort of notice something demonic and then cast something out. Actually, there's a huge distinction between uh, a uh, serious and enduring mental health disorder and actually uh, a spiritual influence. Now, what I'm not saying is that someone who is schizophrenic cannot also be uh, subject to the influence of the demonic. At the same time, many, many people who look and act in a very functional way and appear to be completely normal might also be influenced by the demonic. 
and I found that to be true in my churches. Sometimes it's the, uh, it's the most normal people, uh, the people who have the least disorders, apparently, who might be the most impacted by demonic influence. And so what, one of the prejudices that we're working against is the assumption that you look at someone who might be hearing voices, for example, who might be acting in a chaotic or dysfunctional way and saying, aha, I know exactly what's going on here, this is a demon, and then you proceed to try and throw something out of someone. I've actually met uh, schizophrenic people, people with serious and enduring mental health disorders who know Christ, who know the love of Christ, who have no, uh, there's no influence of anything demonic in their lives. They're suffering from an illness, and they work very well with that illness in the same way that there might be members of this congregation today who might be diabetic. If you're diabetic, it does not mean you're also demonized. It means that you've got a serious and enduring illness that you're coping with for the rest of your life. On a grand meta-narrative, is illness what God wants? And is illness not in the realm of the things that Satan brought into the world, if you like, in the full part of the broken world? Will, illness, will we experience illness in the kingdom of heaven? No, we won't. So is it not also possible to say that there's something uh, of Satan, if you like, if we're going to talk in those sort of terms, about all sorts of illnesses? It doesn't mean that we're necessarily possessed, if you like, in any way. Rob, do you want to elaborate on that? Um, yeah, just, I mean, three very brief things. The first is that if you go to our website and look on the events page from the event we did last year at HTB at Holy Trinity Brompton, there's a great seminar by one of our other directors who can't be here today, Jonathan Clark, on the whole area of demon possession, etc., and mental illness. And it's all covered. All of the Bible passages are examined, etc. And I think, you know, there are so many misconceptions and assumptions in this area. It's amazing. And the other thing to say is having worked in mental health services for, for, for well over 10 years and seen hundreds of people with mental illness, many, many, many people with schizophrenia, I think only twice have I had any kind of thinking that there is a manifest presence of evil in the room with me. And neither of those people had schizophrenia. Okay, well, the uh, roving mic is around somewhere. Who, who wants to ask a question? Put your hand up. Yeah, in the middle just there. Wait for the mic to, to get to you. Don't stand on ceremony, just go for it. just want to know what you use when you're, you're dealing with people at their messiest, obviously. What do you do so it doesn't spill over into your own life? How do you keep yourself? How do you keep yourself apart from caring for others? I organise conferences like this. No. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a very serious point. Is, you know, how, how do... Well, I mean, we all do this, so I won't answer this. I've chatted enough already. How, how do we keep ourselves fresh? Kate, maybe? Um, for me, I would say that's about boundaries uh, for me, which is a really interesting topic in church. If I was... Because I work for the church, for those of you who didn't weren't at my seminar. If I worked as a clinician, I would have really clean boundaries around the people that I see. I would only see them once a week when they came into my... Uh, my consulting room. They wouldn't know who or anything about my life outside of that place. It would be much cleaner. As people working in the church, it's not quite that clean. And I think there's a great strength in that. You know, we do do life together, don't we, with the people in our church. Um, you know, the people who I support and care for will also know me. They may well know my daughter, my husband, you know, stuff like that. But so for me, it is vitally important that I keep good boundaries, that I'm not always in church um, anyone I work with, I'm very clear about. So I have some specific rules about when they can and cannot approach me if I'm in church. So just as an example, if I'm ever holding my daughter, that's not the time to come and talk to me. 
Just simple boundaries like that, really. What we say to people is because it's so difficult in church, that's why we plan specific times when you can come and see us and we can give you the proper support that you need. But for me, outside of church, it's just important that I do occasionally get out of church. Churches um, kind of pull you in, don't they, in a good way, um, but also sometimes in a bad way. Um, and, you know, it was a, a new lady who came to work in our office. When she first started in January, I told her that Friday was my day off. And it was uh, midway through, nearly at the end of February, when she said to me, you say it's your day off, but I've seen you every single Friday. <laughs> so uh, you have to be careful about making sure that you do have some time when you're not caring for people and not supporting them. Anyone else on that? Rachel. Uh, obviously, a lot of the work that I do is, is, is done online, and it's done on the internet and um, the website and through email and stuff like that. So I have a very strict husband. Um, who makes sure, and I work from home as well, so it's not a case, it's very similar to what Kate just was saying, you know, I, my problem is that my office is at my house um, a lot of the time, so um, my husband will physically remove my laptop from me um, in order for me to switch off. I have very, very, again, I'm very strict, I have very, very dedicated time with my little boy, um, because otherwise my day starts at nine in the morning and finishes when I go to bed, um, and I have a lot, I do a lot of fun stuff as well um, to keep me occupied, but the thing that I find the most helpful is, and there is a slight questioning about how sensible this is, but um, is I'm doing a degree as well. So I have something that I can completely get my mind out of self-harm and actually start thinking about something completely differently. Great. I go fishing. <laughs> That's the shortest answer he's given all day. Can't say I'm verbose. Uh, I have a question here. There's quite a few self-harm questions, and um, thank you. And one of them that I've got here was repeated several times. How do we prevent support groups, stroke websites, encouraging self-harming, etc., cetera, behavior? Um, you send them to selfharm.co.uk. It's always a good place to start, a little bit of self-promotion. Um, the web, the internet is a necessary, you know, it's, it's a real mixed blessing. Um, there are a lot of very, very dangerous websites out there, but equally there's also a very lot of good ones um, the important thing um, is that you can direct young people if a young person's in, in trouble and is needing a website of that nature is that you can signpost them somewhere whether it's to us or whether it's to somewhere else ultimately if a young person wants to find a pro-anorexia or a pro-self-harm website they're going to find it and that's there's not a great deal until the internet's tightened up a little bit there's not a great deal we can do about that I got a good one so thankful to AA for enabling friends to stay on the wagon for 20 years, but AA has become her church. Is she addicted to the cure? Hmm, interesting. You know, I think this is a really good question because actually I, I have an anxiety disorder. Most of you know that. I get a bit anxious sometimes. And, uh, and I've worked on that anxiety disorder for most of my life. Now, it was quite interesting because is I, I, when I sometimes get anxious, I call my friend Rob, and uh, I, I haven't called him for about a year now, so I'm doing quite well. You're doing well. I thank you. I'm doing quite well. But you know, when I was when I was, I went through a season of being a bit anxious again, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I've missed. I'm doing all the stuff. I do all the CBT. I've done all the therapy. I know. I know the whole deal. I know about it. We've just written a book about it together. Um, Coming uh, so out in the autumn. Yes. Don't plug it too heavily. But um, you know, so you know all the stuff. But but sometimes you just think, oh no, maybe I've missed something. And so what I decided to do was shell out a couple of hundred quid to go and see the top guy at the Priory. 
Now, he'd written the book that I found the most helpful, so I think, right, I'm going to go and see him just to check, make sure, never check if you're a checker, but I went to check to make sure that, you know, I'd not missed anything. So I went into his office, and he's ostrich skin shoes, which definitely showed me that he was a kind of the quality psychiatrist that I wanted to see. <laughs> and uh, we sat there for an hour and had a really nice chat. You know, he's a lovely guy, brilliant guy. I had such a laugh with him. And uh, I kept thinking, where's this going? You know, where is this going? Well, I can see my 200 quid kind of draining down <laughs> the back wall. Uh, and then at the end, so he went, yeah, so you've got an anxiety disorder. So I'm like going, yeah, I know that. Tell me something I don't know. I've just paid you 200 quid. Um, and he's saying, yeah, so you're totally functional. You're about as normal as you get and uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. Um, so great, thanks a lot for coming. I kept thinking the Priory, they rip you off. Don't go there. You know, the thing is... We'll, we'll edit that bit. Yeah, okay, edit that bit. Don't, I love the Priory, it's great, fantastic. Um, the thing is that, you know, what I realized was you can become addicted to cure. In a sense, you can keep trying to find the thing that makes you perfect. But the only thing that makes us perfect is Christ. You know, it's only in him that we find true perfection, because he can make us perfect only through his sacrifice. And when we're looking for perfection in ourselves, we'll never find it. The reality is sometimes when we've seen the problem, we can't get the problem out of our eyes. You know, once you've seen it, it's like M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Travelled, a great book. He says, you know, when you've gone down that road, you can't go back and go, oh, I need to erase everything in my memory about the fact that I've got this disorder, I've had this disorder. It's kind of there. And so, we talk about practicing kind of Christian contemplation, about letting it sit on you and just going, yeah, that's kind of there. It's okay. You know, it is important not to keep chasing after this kind of one-button cure. Because, friends, you're not going to find it outside of the Scriptures. And you're not going to find it outside of your relationship with God. And you've got to remember that dysfunction is a spectrum, that everyone's on it, that no one's off of it. And actually, we're all on an emotional journey. And we're all on a mental health journey. Everyone in the street everyone in your neighborhood. And so we've got to be a little accepting and be aware. If we're still chasing after something, we need to maybe let it go. Now, I think AA is fantastic. And maybe this, for this woman, it's really, really helpful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't critique it, but I'll just say, look, go where, you know, let, hold it lightly. Don't chase after it too hard. And be accepting of yourself and of your relationship with God. Just, there's a sort of related kind of thing here about this idea of sort of brokenness within us and sort of staying in a place of brokenness. It says... Um, it says, initially it says church creates this idea that you don't have to be sorted. So church can create this idea you don't have to be sorted. And I, th I think that's really encouraging because I think actually sometimes churches do create an idea that you do have to be sorted. And the fact that this person actually is saying that something's coming into the UK culture to say that you don't have to be Mr. Incredible or, you know, an amazing kind of person. I, I think, you know, hopefully what we've got is we've got hold of this idea that Christianity is about a journey. That um, The reason that St. Peter was the greatest shepherd was because he was also the greatest sinner and denied Jesus Christ three times while he was being um, tried. So, you know, we've got this idea that hopefully, you know, we carry this treasure in jars of clay. But, but what it says is it says, if as a leader you are struggling with mental health problems, can you still mentor or support a young person? And I think there's, there's three things I want to say about that. First of all is I think it's fantastic. It's a great example of creativity when out of our distress were able to help others. It says in um, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think it is, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, as you have suffered, so you are also able to help those who suffer. And as you've been helped, so also you can help others, etc. So, so I think there's this wonderful sort of fusion. It's a complicated passage. And it's one of those passages that the more times you read it, 
you become very much aware that the passage is not saying Jesus is going to comfort you forever and you're never going to have any pain again. It's almost saying Jesus is going to leave you with 5% pain so you remember that perhaps he's given you some stuff to pass on to other people. And I think, I think that's quite exciting. If you are a leader with a past, with a problem, that's important in your ministry and you shouldn't shy away from that. Um, the rider on that is that there has to be appropriate disclosure. So there's no point in you filling all of your sermons at the expense of teaching other parts of the Bible. There's no point in you um, taking up all of the counseling time with a particular person with your stories and your issues and not giving any attention to their issues. And I mean, for example, occasionally I will have a talk with my clients about faith, but most of the time that's not the important about my faith. You know, most of the time that's not the important thing we need to be talking about. And uh, the other thing, of course, is, you know, related to the boundaries kind of issue is there may be times in your life where it's appropriate for you not to lead and not to mentor while you do some reparatory sort of work to get you to a place where you can. And I think there's no, time, there's no shame in taking some time out so that you can help people in the future. You know, God wants living sacrifices and not burnt offerings. So just because you've got a testimony, just because you've got a story, doesn't mean you have to get it out today. Maybe it's right to spend a bit of time and then start ministering in a couple of years. Should we get one from the floor? Yep. Who's got a question? Go on. No one? Oh, go on. No? Okay, let's do one from the, bo- from the bucket. Okay, Rachel. Uh, this is a question that I'm often asked, and there were several people who asked it. Um, can talking about self-harm at all put the idea into the heads of those that had not thought about that as a way of coping? Uh, and like I said, I'm asked this a lot. The way that I'm going to reply is by rephrasing the question. So, can talking about sex education at all put the idea into the heads of those young people that have not thought about that as something to do? Possibly but it still needs to be talked about. And that's the, that's the point. Good answer. Succinct as well. You, yeah. you and me. Rachel, yeah. we're on, that's why we're on this level of the table. <laughs> Let's keep those other dudes over there. Go on then, Kate. Okay, I've got a good question, uh, and I'm not sure how much I'm going to answer it. Um, so you guys just be thinking as I'm reading it. It says, is it a good idea to encourage other young people to play a part in helping their peers? Who wants it? Is it a good idea to encourage other young people to play a part in helping their peers? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a great question. Yeah. It's an obvious one. I just was it's waiting for the question. caveat of complexity. You know, what, what we're about here is not about, um, you know, if we keep saying this about what we're trying to do. You know, the danger with, with what we do in terms of these sort of conferences is you're sitting down there looking at us thinking, oh, maybe they've got the answer. You know, and actually that's not the case, I promise you. Um, you know, know us. We're about sharing a network of folk who all have the answer together corporately. You know, this is what it means to be living stones. It's about being the body of Christ. As living stones, we build in the temple of God together. So we're all stones. It's no, one stone on its own is no good. It's not a house. It's certainly in a temple. So we've all got to kind of build together as living stones in this area of mental and emotional health in our churches. I was ch- chatting to a chap earlier at uh, who just said to me, look, Will, you know, how are we going to do this in church? How are we going to change the culture in church to be you know, more intuitive? Is there a plan? Or you know, how can we help leaders to be more emotionally healthy? You know, the four of us aren't going to be trolling around every church in the country. You're going to be going home from this conference and saying to your vicar or to your pastor or to your leader, hey, I went to this mental health conference. What, what are you doing about mental health? We've got a team here doing something about mental health. Who, who's, who are the people who are going to help us? You know, how are we going to do this peer-to-peer? 
And with young people, if we're not putting emotional mental health on the agenda and saying, guys, let's have this conversation, if we're not encouraging young people to be aware of the signs of self-harm or of depression or of anxiety or, or of eating disorders or whatever it is, then how are we ever going to find out the information? And teenagers are secretive as it is. They're not going to come to you and go, hey, look, I've got a problem. They're going to go to their friend and say, hey, I've got a problem. As Ali said at the beginning, you know, a friend said to her, I'm cutting myself. She said, well, stop it. You know, we need to educate the alleys of today to say, well, well I know something about self-harm, actually. And uh, there's a great website you can go to. And there's help online. And there's help on this phone line. And, you know, that's what we need to be doing. It's a shared experience. You know, please go away as an activist. You know, don't go away as a consumer. We want you all to be activists. That's the plan. Just for young people, my hesitation, which, was, which isn't, I mean, I agree with everything that Will said, is Thank to you. put some appropriate levels of how much support they can give to people. I only say this because when I, particularly when I used to work with um, ABC Anorexia and Bulimia Care, we used to get a lot of calls from young people who would say things like, my friend has told me and she hasn't told anyone else, and um, so how can I help her? And I think that's great that young people want to support each other, but they also need to know where else to get support and how much they can do. As a young person, you can support your friend, you can be there for them, but you can't be their saviour. None of us can, and young people are even more prone than some of us in believing that maybe they should be able to solve everything. So it's helping young people to find appropriate places of other, other sources of support. Uh, and I perhaps also encourage... Just a second. Just yeah, no, a please, second. please, please, please. <laughs> perhaps encouraging them to do some positive stuff. So instead of saying to them, you know, oh, you've got to help your friend stop self-harming or whatever it is, say, well, why don't we get you all together and why don't we all chat a bit about how do we handle stress? And young people can share some great ideas of how do they deal with this? How does it, do they feel when this happens? What do they do to make themselves feel better? And that's the sort of stuff that young people can be great at supporting each other with. So um, positive inputs and learning about positive emotional health can be a really, really important thing. I was just going to say one action point I'd love youth leaders to take away from this conference is actually do a session with their young people about when it's appropriate to be confidential with information. You know, I think that's a really, really important... You don't need to know anything about mental health to know that that's an important subject that we often don't talk about in our, in our youth groups. Actually, having, doing a session on when is it appropriate to break confidence, it's so key. Right, right now, with Facebook and Twitter and BBM and all this sort of stuff, you know, people have s corporate secrets, and we've got to break that model. And we've also got to understand where appropriate confidentiality is also good. I mean, someone tweeted, like, is there ever a time when youth are confidential or private? And I think, well, that's a good question too. We need to train our young people, the church leaders of tomorrow, when it's okay to share and when it's not okay. Because adults get that wrong too, right? Churches are infiltrated with, with gossip and with disclosure and un unhelpful boundaries. And they're also filled with secrecy and privacy and unhelpful non-disclosure. So what we need to do is actually educate our young people now to say, when is it right to, to go to a leader and say, look, my friend said she's preparing to run away or my friend said he's feeling deeply depressed and I didn't promise to be confidential because I said I can't be confidential about something like that. Fantastic. Let's educate them for that and then we iron out some of those potential problems. Anyone got a burning question? Anyone had an epiphany? Anna. Yeah, I named you from the back. <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, I'm not very good at same question, so if I waffle, just stop me. But if you are working with Christian young people, and a question that came up before was um, somebody's sl sleeping with her boyfriend in the youth group, and how do you stop them? And um, you were saying about you sort of look at the pros and cons, and it might be a way of challenging them. 
well, how wise do you think it is to then bring their relationship with Jesus into that? So talk about, okay, how does this affect your relationship with Jesus and all this sort of stuff. Like, will that have an effect? Rather than just sort of leaving that to one side and sort of saying about, um, you know, the pros and cons and whatnot. Sure. I, I, I think it's a great question. What, what, what we're trying to do here is do the integrative mental health stuff. And so maybe the example of sleeping with the boyfriend is more of a, what I'd call a, a spiritual discipleship issue than it is a mental health issue. And so although the, the analogy kind of works, it kind of is slightly limited in the sense that one of the dangers with mental health stuff is that people s- erase sin from the agenda. Okay, and I'm, I'm saying this as the church leader, but also I know Rob would, would concur from the psychiatric perspective. The psychiatric community has, the secular psychiatric community has slightly removed sin from the agenda. And that's a problem, because not everything is just accidental or a subject of our own needs or failings, you know, in terms of we're not just a consequence of our damage. You know, we willfully do things that are wrong and against God's will, and that's what sin is, okay? So what we're trying to do here is run that tightrope of saying sometimes there's just willful disobedience against God, and we need to disciple young people out of that appropriately with Scripture and prayer. Um, And there are also times when people do things including having reckless sex, uh, as an outworking of a mental or emotional health issue in which maybe the approach needs to be slightly different. You see, for the person with a terribly low self-esteem, you know, sexual encounter can be a, a form of self-harm, in which case we might need a different sort of tactic. You know, but what we do need to be able to do is be a little discerning about when it's just a sin issue and when actually there might be something uh, emotional, mental health orientated behind it. Does that make sense? I think, um, you know, that's why it's called mind and soul. So, you know, we, we, we can't often say sort of and is the most important word. This is an ongoing tension. I mean, I got into this when I was um, a church elder and also training as a psychiatrist. And I, I had to start, I mean, the way I dealt with it, it's a bit 1990s, but I sort of started blogging about, um, you know, sort of this tension. And it, it, it's a difficult kind of thing. And there's, there's, there's no sort of either or. Can I just do one question on a sort of slightly different topic, just to sort of, sort of um, do something we haven't talked about before? On the subject of preventing issues, could you mention something about helping youth deal with crises like parents with terminal illness? Just say a, a quick word about the terminal illness things. I think it is a particular thing. And I'd also be interested if you know of any resources. There's two things that, that spring to my mind. The first is that there is, I think, in the church and in the society at the moment, an avoidance of death. And I think, you know, one of the sort of things we're talking about with mind and soul is bringing the difficult emotions back into the mainstream of church. You know, we need more sermons on David when he was in the wilderness. We need to study our church history and read about the times of persecution more and martyrdom and things like that. We need to learn from the Catholics about their understanding of the passion of Christ and entering into Christ's suffering. Um, There's all these kind of things that I think as a church we need to move away from the sort of Hollywood influence that has come through our culture that everyone must be happy and smiley and wearing what I call a swag, which is a sickly, weak, evangelical grin. Okay, It's okay to cry. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to limp. It's okay to be carried for a while, like in the Footprints poem. These things are all compatible with healthy spirituality. And I think, you know, there's an old prayer that was prayed a hundred or so years ago, which is, God spare me from a speedy death. And the, the, the understanding of it was that if you died quickly, you didn't have time to say goodbye 
to your loved ones, etc. And I think because the terminal illness is quite drawn out, there are positives in a slow death as well. And I think we mustn't, mustn't forget that. There are negatives, particularly if the young person is very involved in being a carer for the person with the terminal illness. But terminal illnesses are sometimes seen as bad, and we pray for a speedy death nowadays. And I'm not sure that's the most wise. Certainly bereavements are more difficult after a speedy death, whereas in a, a, a chronic death, you have an opportunity to do some of what Dame Elizabeth Butler Slosh, the founder of the hospice movement and a great Christian lady, she called it the grief work. And some of that happened before the person died. So there's, there's, a, there's an advantages to a long death and disadvantages to a speedy death. Um, and I think if we can get some of these ideas and also general ideas about mind and soul and about negative emotions being okay sometimes, then um, you know, we can hopefully take some steps as a culture to answering that. Now, the particular question, I think, is about how do you help a youth maybe who is supporting someone who is going through a terminal illness. It could be their only remaining parent if the parents are separated and now this person is dying of cancer. This person is being required to perform personal care, perhaps they feel in a very difficult situation with. And I don't know of huge numbers of resources in that area. I know that Bernardo's are fantastic and run some great groups around the country. There's an organization called Willow's Young Carers. And if you type young carers into Google, probably some similar things will come up in in your kind of area. Um, A friend of mine, Pablo Martinez, who's a Spanish psychiatrist, has written a book called Tracing the Rainbow, which is all about children dealing with a diagnosis of cancer and also dealing with a diagnosis of cancer in their parents. And it's based on a talk he gave at Spring Harvest two or three years ago. Does anyone know any specific resources for helping youth deal with parents with terminal illnesses? One there. There is. Winston's Wish, I was going to mention, absolutely fantastic. We'll, we'll take children away on short residential weekends, help them go through a bereavement process by painting or using creative techniques during that. It's not a Christian charity, as I understand, but it is, it's first class from what I've seen. Yeah. Rip Rap. Children and young people coping with cancer. Rip Rap. With R-I-P-R-A-R-I-P-R-A-P. Great. Fantastic. Okay. Child bereavement charity. Yes. Okay, yep. I've got one here is, um, that I, I think is quite interesting. Uh, would people in olden times have got depression? Um, you put e.g. cavemen who had no social inequality. So did they get depressed? <laughs> and, uh, what about the size of your cave? Yeah, it all depends on the size <laughs> of your cave, indeed. How many bears you killed that day, how big your club is, and all sorts of stuff. Exciting. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's a really good question, actually. Um, you know, the thing about depression is, it's actually, there are, there are obviously different catalysts to, pre- to depression. And depression, you could say, statistically might be on the rise because of increasing pressures uh, in society, the speed of technology. In the 1960s, they said that, that actually by the 1990s, people would only have to work two days a week because technology had advanced to a level where actually, you know, they would be able to do their work within the space of time that it currently takes people a week to do it. It was a really nice idea. Of course, when it got to the 1990s, everyone's working seven days a week on their Blackberries, uh, and they can do a ton more work because new pressures. So stress 
associated stress and 21st century stress it has, is having uh, you know, a propagating impact on, on the, 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 kind of the, the nature of depression in our society. But depression uh, is, is a broad experience and actually is a universal human experience. Remember, there are different sorts of depression. And clinical depression, as a mental disorder, actually has been, is one of the most uh, you know, well-known and well-documented illnesses uh, th- throughout time. In the scriptures themselves, we see many, many biblical characters, thousands of years ago, including Jeremiah, who suffered from terrible, crippling depressions. David, of course, suffered from a terrible depression uh, following his, uh, his indiscretion with Bathsheba. So there are various depressions within the scriptures, but also throughout Christian history. Uh, John Bunyan, you might know, had a terrible OCD in depression and wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress while suffering from crippling OCD in prison. Uh, obviously, there's Samuel Johnson, who, who used to walk backwards down Fleet Street and pop and whistle uh, every time he went through a door. Also, a terrible sufferer of depression and OCD. Uh, there was um, Florence Nightingale, who suffered crippling depression for 20 years. Um, and so great uh, historical Christian saints, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, suffered from the bleakest depression, uh, the founder of the Jesuit movement. And throughout history, what we see throughout Christian history, not only biblically was depression, or what was called melancholy, uh, a serious disorder that afflicted many, many people, but actually within the past 2,000 years since Christ, many Christian saints have suffered from, from crippling depression as well. Is depression, therefore, likely to be just a socioeconomic uh, impact issue for the 21st century? No, I think absolutely not. You know, depression is an illness. We need to see it as such, but there are new stressors which can instigate depression in the 21st century, which are very specific, uh, whereas in the past they might have been, indeed, about whether or not you killed the bear that day. Rachel, over to you. I might just, just to finish off on that one before we move on, I think one of the things that I, did talk, that I talked about in my seminar, which I do think is interesting, is how much some of the changes in our cultural practices may have influenced the likelihood of emotional and mental health problems. And I think that is quite an interesting one. It's quite heavily debated in sort of literature and clinical realms, but there are definitely some changes to the way we live that people would say are linked to an increased risk of developing emotional mental health orders. So the classic one is that as, a, as in Western society, we are so much more isolated than in a lot of other societies than, the, than, than we would have been many years ago. And um, what as, as Christians, what I, as a Christian, I would say that every human being is created and they are intended to be living in connection with other people. And I think our Western lives often leave us very isolated, which leave us more prone to struggling with our emotions. So I don't know if anybody saw a while ago, there was a series uh, on BBC Two called Tribal Wives. Did anybody, anybody see that? It was really interesting. It was basically about a bunch of UK women who got sent to go and live with tribes, you know, in Africa, sort of ancient tribes. And the thing that came out of that again and again was where these women were, were just, uh, just blown away by how these people lived in real community. And so they would talk, I remember one where there was a woman talking to, there was a lady who just had a baby and she was obviously exhausted and, you know, she had a difficult time. And the woman said, well, who's going to look after her? And the people from the tribe just thought she was mad and just said, well, we all will, because we always do. And it really struck me, you know, the difference between our culture now, where, you know, we do a lot of work with young mums, particularly first-time mums, who often really struggle with feeling isolated and, things, and postnatal depression, which has in part a medical cause, but very often can also just be linked to practical factors. So I do think that there are some cultural factors which have probably led to an increase in um, how common emotional and mental health problems are. Great. I think we're going we're gonna to wrap up now. Um, 
Rachel, you just want to say one thing about something technical? Yes. Um, so many of you lovely, lovely people have been to see us today at the selfharm.co.uk stand in the other room and registered for the resource packs. Technology has failed us um, and your email addresses have been lost. So if you came and saw us up until before two o'clock, if you came and saw us and registered your details with us, please, 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 before you go home today, nip and see Donna and either write your email address down on a piece of paper or write it down there or, or whatever. But if you can please, please come and give it to us and massive apologies, but technology is not my friend today. Okay, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Um, my last question is, is taking medication not trusting God for healing? And I just want to close uh, this section just on, on that one. To say that, that we believe that God is at work in psychology and in psychiatry and in discipleship and in our churches and in our families and in our relationships. That God's at work in this room. You know, that God is at work with us. And, and we really want to kind of, as an organization... Be thankful to God for medical excellence, you know, to thank God that there are the provision of medications that can relieve depression, that can help people through really difficult disorders. And when we look at the treatments for cancer or for, uh, for, for serious and enduring illnesses, for insulin and others, we thank God for those gifts. We thank God for them. And actually, no one would say not taking your insulin uh, is actually uh, a wise idea and you're not trusting in God for your healing. We want to say that, that medication, that medicine for the mind is good, that God uses doctor's hands, a physician's hands, and that we want to integrate these subjects as an organization say, yes, take the medication that the doctor has prescribed to you and let's pray for you, let's pray for healing. It's a faith journey, it's integrated, and we must work together to stop the separation of the Christian faith from all these good things, and we must make sure all these good things of faith are in the medical world around us. So I hope you work with us on ensuring that agenda uh, continues to, to be pushed out there in the churches and in the secular services that some of us are part of. Well, we're going to conclude the conference now, and I'm going to, I think we've got a band, are the band going to, they're not, the bands aren't going to come back up. We're just going to pray then, and you've left it to me, the vicar, to say something formal. Now let's pray to Jesus together and thank him for everything we've done. And we want to say thank you to you guys for being here today and for being part of this. So let's pray. You might stand, raise your hands, or do whatever you do in your tradition. Jesus Christ, we want to thank you that it's all about you. It's all for you. It's all because of you. Thank you, Father, for the circle of divine security that you created for us. That you love us and you've sent us out from a secure base to build the kingdom of God, to preach the good news, to release the captives, to call for the recovery of sight for the blind, and to usher in the incoming kingdom of heaven. And we praise you, Father, for the safe haven that welcomes us home by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your word which breathes life into our souls, for our church families which gives us community and encouragement, for our friends, for our brothers and sisters in you, Thank you for all of your provision to us. And Jesus, today we want to say again, we don't want to deny or hold back from the belief in miraculous healing. And we just pray by your Spirit, Lord, if there's anyone here today that you want to touch for healing, just in a miraculous moment, we pray for that now in your name. We pray for those that we love, that we care for, that we're concerned about, that through your Spirit you'd anoint them for healing today. 
We pray for those who are on the long journey, for patience, for courage, for determination, for encouragement. Father, thank you. We know that you're doing a big work and we want to be part of it. Uh, Lord, we want to just say that we submit ourselves to your will as we leave this place. Break our hearts, Lord, for the broken. Give us the resources we need to serve your church, to build your kingdom, and to bless your people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, everyone, for coming. Christianity magazine's on the way out, and I think the resources hall is open for four or five more minutes. Do mingle and say goodbye to one another, and stay online with us at minusoul.info. Register with us and give us your feedback from the conference. That would be fantastic. Thank you.